One of the promises of the United States is the opportunity for recreation. Regardless of where or what you come from, this country offers the possibility of creating a new and different life for oneself and one's family. If nothing else, it offers a sense of hope for something better. That is what's brought countless people to these shores, not least of which were my parents who immigrated from the Caribbean in the late 50s. But that opportunity for transformation is markedly different for those original immigrants and their first-generation children, whose lives are more rooted in the American experience. For these children, it can be difficult to straddle expectations that reflect both the unlimited possibilities of a new generation and the lack of possibilities by the generation before. Michael Santiago faced just such an issue after immigrating with his parents from the Dominican Republic. His desire to be a photographer was tempered by the more realistic cultural and familial expectations for consistency and reliability. But after a decades-long delay, he returned to the camera and made a name for himself as a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist, currently working as a staff photographer for Getty Images. His story is an immigrant story, as much as it is the story of a photographer. But it's also the story of anyone who seeks to define themselves on their own terms. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thanks for doing this. Of course, no problem, man. I'm a huge fan of your show. I mean, I, this is like... It's it, the conversations that I had on here are pretty are pretty dope. So I'm glad to um, an honor to be to be part of this. Well, your name has come up several times over the last couple of years. So I've always okay. just had you on the had you on the list. So I said, oh, it's good good time to reach out and connect. Yeah, yeah, that's exact, that's exactly what everybody's doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you were born in the DR, and that's where my parents are from. Yeah, I mean, I was born in a. Uh, 19, 19, what? I can't, I didn't even remember now. It was 1980. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what city? Uh, we were born in, um, I was born in La Capital. That's basically where my immediate family is from. Okay. But um, my, my mother, uh, her family, they're from in, in bed, which is um, mm-hmm. like a, a small town outside of Puerto Plata. My dad, my dad's, I mean, I don't really know too much about my dad's side of the family too much, but from what I understand, like the, the capital also. Yeah, my dad was from uh, Monte Cristi, and my mom's family is from La Vega. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then, and then they, and then they moved to Santo Domingo before they left uh, to for New York in the late fifties. Okay, yeah. I mean, so. it's wild, you know, like because you know, I, I've been trying to trace trace back my father's side of the family. You know, once I started to get interested more about like more, gen, you know, genealogy, genealogy, and where we were from, and what, you know, my dad was actually in the military, and he. You know, it was actually part of three years, you know, dictatorship. He was he, he was in, oh. in all of that. But the yeah. wild thing about that is that his sister, my aunt, she worked for the the opposite president and had to leave Dominican Republic with him in the sixties when when there was oh, a one boss. Yeah. Yeah, so she was one boss. Oh man! Yeah, I mean, she 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 traveled to Europe with them when when he had to flee, and then somehow ended up in, back in America. And I've tried talking to her, you know, getting some stories about what that was like and getting more history. And she just she won't speak about it. Man. Man. Yeah, same same with my parents. I try to t- talk to them, and it's just like, porque, porque tu hablar de eso? Yeah, and yeah. I, it's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm sure that it's it was painful. 
mm-hmm. you know, and really difficult. And uh, it, I was always very curious about it, and I was never able to crack my dad. Yeah, and my mom, and my mom, you know, I'll, I'll never get it out of her. Yeah. So, yeah, but, I mean, there, there was one time, like, you no, know, my my dad, my dad passed away. It was like three or four years ago, going on four years now. At some point, he, he, you know, he was really sick and he was on all kinds of medicines and I used to give him hallucinations. And there was one day where he had kind of, we, you know, he had a flashback to the day that Trujillo was was killed. And he got mm. up and he was like, yo, he's like, you know, telling my mom, like, we got to go. We got to get the kids dressed. We got to get out of here. They're coming after me now, too. And luckily, my older uh, brother was there. He was visiting from Florida. He ended up calling, calling him down because my older brother was in the military as well. So, like, you know, he was just telling him, Comandante, Comandante, everything's going to be fine. You know, you're good. You know, the kids are fine and stuff like that. And, like, that that was, like, the first time I ever seen my dad's, like, had any kind of those flashbacks from, from his time in the military. Yeah, my, my uncle, Rafael, was one of those, one of the guys who went over to DR to try and uh, overthrow Trujillo. Okay. And, and he was, then they, they got him, you know, and they mm. killed him. And then at some point after that, my father went to Cuba to get trained by the Cuban government with mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other Dominicans around the time that I think Trujillo uh, was assassinated. Okay. So my dad never ended up going going to the DR and came back. But it was always really strange to think of my dad as a young man training to go to war because it just, yeah. just, 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 it just, yeah, that, that whole thing is, yes, that whole thing is the reason why my dad was never really too fond of, of my beard because of the baboos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he always, he, he always hated the fact that I had a beard and he would just tell me to just shave it. And, it's, and I know it was probably because of that. Yeah. So how old were you when you moved out here? I mean, at least moved to New York. Yeah, I, 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 1987, that's when the year we moved here. So I was about seven, seven, eight years old. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you still, you still had memories of coming up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what was that, what was that like for you? Because for me, I didn't go back to the DR. I mean, I never went to the DR until I was about 14. Okay. So I had no perspective in terms of what my family came from, especially my dad, mm-hmm. until then. But you, you did. Yeah. So you had something to sort of relate it to. Tell me about, you know, those early days in terms of being, you know, a young kid having to get acclimated to a whole new, whole new culture, even though you were probably surrounded by a lot of other immigrant Dominicans. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, the, 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 you know, the, the fondest memories and things that I remember the most about being young is going on the military bases and, you know, just hanging out, hanging out there. You know, there was a private beach there. So he used to go on the beach and look for crabs. They had a kind of little restaurant where you, where I was, where I would always get on the pollo and tostones. So that's like one of my comfort foods. And my dad was, yeah. And my dad was, and my dad was a musician also. So, you know, like, I, you know, I used to go to Coco Valois' house and other people. You know, I used to see all these famous musicians there. But at the same time, you know, we had, you know, my sisters lived in America and my aunt lived here. So I would, you know, I would come up here for vacations. And that's kind of like where I started like trickling and started picking up a little bit of English. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, coming here, it was, it really wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't a dip, too, bit, too too much of a change, you know, because, you know, in, yeah. in, 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 in Dominican Republic, you know, we had, um, you know, we had access to cable. So like I learned, I watched Disney all the time when I was younger. So, I, you know, I was learning English that way. So, you know, when we moved here to New York, we moved to the Bronx. And, and I think the, the biggest, the, you know, the biggest, um, I guess, acclimation that I had to do was dealing with bullies. You know, that was it. Cause you know, I was, yeah. I was a new kid. I was a new kid. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't really speak a lot of English. So like, and because of that, I just, I did nothing but read books and just study. And I, I ended up picking English 
up fairly quickly. And, you know, by the end of my first year in my ESL class, I ended up actually being a tutor. That's how quickly I learned how to speak English, uh-huh. you know, and then from there, from, from the Bronx, we moved up upstate and that also became a challenge because again, I was a new kid. I was in, you know, I, you know, I was in ESL class until about five till about fifth grade. So I still had to deal with bullies dealing all over that, but you know, you end, you end up, you know, like the town that we moved to, you know, there were a lot of immigrants there. So that's kind of like where I gravitated to. And some of those guys I'm still, I'm still friends with to, to this day. You know, your, your, your parents were immigrants as were mine. And I know that growing up and starting to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, it was always, always had to sort of consider that my parents often wanted me to do something realistic or something mm. that they understood, <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, that's nice, but you can't make any money from that. And I think any parent is concerned with that, but I speak of especially immigrants, especially those that have come from really modest circumstances. Man, why, why, do, they do, why do they do that to us? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that was an issue for, for you, so talk to me about that and how eventually... Uh, after years of like working a normal, normal jobs that you finally started picking up a camera. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that I, I brought that up to my mom not that long ago because, you know, like I told them I wanted to be a photographer when I went, when I went to school and they were like, what if you want to do that? You know, we're not paying, we're not paying for school. And I'm like, damn, okay. So, you know, like I, I was really into art to begin with. And I knew that if I take, if I took art classes, so I ended up, you know, majoring in graphic design, which is still kind of, you know, arts related. If I went into that direction, I could still take photo classes. So I ended up still doing that. But, you know, like I brought that up to her that she said that to me and she was just like, I never said that. And I'm like, yeah, you guys did. Oh, God. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was still, you know, doing the graphic design. I, I, it really wasn't. I mean, I, you know, like I knew that I really couldn't draw, which is why I became a photographer. Or, you know, I, you know, I had really no art skills. So like when I, you know, when I finally decided that I wanted to go back to school, which was like 10 years after I had dropped out, you know, they were like, okay, cool. You know what I'm saying? Like they were, they were just happy that I was going back to school for something. And, you know, when I went back to school, I never, I, I never honestly pictured me getting as far as I did. I, I was just, you know, I started a community college and I, you know, graduated from community college and I'm like, okay, now what? And I applied to, to, to a four year school and got my bachelor's degree. I, something I never thought I would do. And then I'm like, okay, now what, you know? And when I went to, for my undergrad, you know, I was doing art photography. That's kind of like, you know, where I started and what, what I thought I wanted to do. But luckily I ended up finding a mentor in Darcy Padilla who used to teach at my, at my school, San Francisco Art Institute. And she, she just showed me, you know, you know, the power of the images that, that we, that we take and what they can do to help try to bring change to this, to, you know, to this country, to this world. Mm-hmm. And that made me fall in love with photojournalism, you know, but when I was graduating from my undergrad, I really had no idea how to go about to get into journalism, photojournalism at all. I really didn't know. I knew that I needed to go back to school because I, I needed to network. I need to learn more about the industry and, you know, yeah. and how to be a journalist. So I wanted to go to grad school and I had no idea how, how I was going to do that. And I ended up winning the Alexia Foundation grant. Um, and that's how I was able to, you know, to go to grad school. You know, like I said, like I started this thinking, all right, I'm going to get my associate's degree and just figure out from there. And I ended up getting a grad school and graduating with a master's degree. I, I, you know, as far, I mean, I, I'm the first person in my family to do all of that. Yeah. Graduate from community college, I don't know, like get a master's degree. It, 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 this is a, this is a, a position that I honestly never really pictured, my, pictured myself in. What was the work that got you the uh, the grant? What had you created? Because you said you were, you know, you went to school mostly for 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 art photography, mm-hmm. but 
Um, what what was the body of work that you you submitted your application with? Yeah, I submitted uh, a body of work on black farmers in in California. The the project was on a, on a farmer uh, named James McGill, and he, you know he comes. He's like a, he's a third generation pig farmers. You know he's his family is just straight out of slavery and um what's the word sharecroppers. You know his family oh, comes from yeah, yeah. His, yeah his family comes from slavery and sharecropping and he's a third generation pig farmer. For me, I never when I think when I thought about farm farming back in the days, I never really, you know, I never really thought about black farmers in America until I actually started started researching and I found out that mm-hmm. there's actually black farmers in in California. I remember going I remember going to um to a farmers market and asking somebody here like you know are there any black farmers here, and the guy just laughed at me like like that like, like that was a joke. You know, but there yeah. actually is black farmers in California. You know, with him, his story was that in the 80s, he, him and a partner, they had um, about, you know, a farm and they had over 300 acres and it was going into foreclosure. You know, they were, they were applying for loans and they ended up getting, having their loan denied and the person who denied their loan ended up buying that farm and selling it for a profit. So he lost all that land. And he was part of the pick for losses that happened in the 90s and he got he got about fifty thousand dollars, but you know, for a farmer, fifty G's ain't that's nothing. That can go right away. That, you know, yeah. and, and the problem with him, you know, he keeps he keeps going into foreclosure issues because he's not making a lot of money, and he doesn't qualify for loans because he doesn't have enough collateral, and then he doesn't have enough. He can't make enough money because he can only hold a certain amount of pigs because he's working by himself. Right. You know, so so I spent you know I spent um about two to about a year and a half, you know, photographing him and documenting him. But I mean, the one thing that I would say is that before I even took my very first picture there, I mean, I spent about three or four months just researching and just reading as much as I could, because like I said, I really didn't know much about the history of black farming in America. And I just dove in, you know, I read as much as I, I read as much as I could. Um, you know, and I looked up work of uh, private photographers who had done this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just studied and that, that's kind of like one of the things that I, I would, you know, what, this one of the, one of the um, I guess, advice I always give to like young photographers, you know, before you dive into anything, just stu- just study the hell out of it. You know, you, you got to you got to be an expert in some of these things before you actually even start wanting to do this kind of work. So what, what do you think that the research provides you? in terms of making the photographs because a lot of people will just dive in and they'll just take pictures that they think they think look good i mean it's, it's most it's mostly understanding what you know what people go through and how people get into those positions you know like you know i, I you know people always talking about like oh you know slavery ended you know 100 and something odd years ago but we're still dealing with the ramifications of that you know right now there's you know there's less than one percent less than one percent of of farmers in america are black, you know, and like in the 1920s, you know, they were about 14 to 15% of the farmers. And now, you know, they're pretty much being decimated. It, it, it's kind of a cliche, but like, you know, to understand the future or the, the present, you got to know your history, you know, yeah. and, and, and understanding a lot of that kind of informs how you work and how you speak with people, you know, because something, you know, if you, if you want to go take uh, photos of, I don't know, let's say like engineers, you know, if you go and talk to them and just like, hey, I want to take photos and are they going to take you serious if you don't know anything about the trade and what they do? Yeah, that was that was that was random. That was random because engineers really just most mostly draw stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know why I just thought of that. <laughs> so when you when you graduated with your master's, mm-hmm. did you feel like you were ready? 
to go out there and start making things happen? Or did you find that once you actually got out there into the real world, there's a bunch of stuff that you didn't know? Yeah, man, there's a lot I didn't know. You know, like once once I once I graduated from Syracuse, I ended up, you know, luckily having a fellowship with um, the News 21 program out of the Walter Cronkite School in, in, in Phoenix. And it was basically an investigative reporting fellowship where, you know, we basically, we, we our focus was uh, the quality of drinking water in America. And we spent what, six, six months starting in January, you know, building our sources and coming up with our stories. And then we spent two months actually reporting those stories during the summer. And that made me fall in love with like with journalism even more because, you know, now I was, you know, I was actually inside a newsroom and I was working with different, and I was working with journalists, journalists alongside people who, you know, were doing things that I wanted to do. And, you know, it felt right to me like, God damn, like this is what I want to do. But then when, once that was over, I went back to New York and I didn't know what to do. You know, luckily when I, when I landed in New York, the very first week there, I ended up getting two different assignments, one from the New York Times and one, one from ProPublica. And I was like, all right, bet, you know, like this is how it is, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And once that, once that was over, like, it was just dried out. I didn't get any assignments at all. I think I got, might've gotten one in March and that was it. You know, and I, and I knew like come June, my student loans were, you know, about to pop up and I had bills to yeah. pay and I had rent. And I'm like, oh man, like, what am I going to do? You know, if, you know, I started looking, looking at jobs outside of journalism because I had bills to pay. But, you know, luckily what ended up happening is that I, I got recommended for the job at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and that's how I ended up there. And, it's, and it, you know, helped me stay you know, in journalism. You know, and then one thing that I would say also is that prior when I was in, in what I was in grad school, I always said that I didn't want to work for a newspaper, you know, I wanted to go out and just work on the stories that I want to work on and, you know, freelance, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and that was probably one of the biggest mistakes I've, that I've made talking that way, because working at the, at the newspaper, it helped me grow so much, not only as a photographer, but as a journalist. And it made me fall in love with this craft even more, you know, like I, I experiment and using different lenses. Cause I, I, I always use just a 35 millimeter lens, you know, you're working at the newspaper. I worked, I will use different lenses. And one of the things that happened at, at the newspaper is that, you know, it's not always, it's not always exciting. They're not always exciting things for you to photograph. You yeah. know, sometimes there's boring things that you got to photograph and you got to make those boring things look exciting. So that, you know, being able to do that helped me grow as a photographer. Another thing also is, is that it, it helped me in a way become a self editor because I didn't, I, you know, I didn't have to submit like 15, 15 photos. It, it, it only had to be four. So I had to narrow down all my images to about four or five or six. So it helped me look at my images in a different way. It helped me like kind of like have an outside perspective of my images that be harsher on myself yeah. about what makes a great, good image. Well, what was an early assignment or, or photograph that you made there that it made you feel like it was the moment that you felt like, okay, I got this. Not, not maybe, maybe not I got this, yeah. but you know, you know what I mean? In terms of feeling like, okay, I, I can do this. So, the, you know, the funny thing is that my first month there, I wanted to quit because I didn't think that I was, I was doing all that great. And, you know, I had, you know, I remember I, ha I had an editor who, you know, everyone, you know, he kept looking at my images and he was just like, oh man, this person's not happy with your photo. This person's not happy with your photo. You know, like what's going on? And he was just like, you know, maybe you just don't got it. You know, some people have it and some people don't. And I'm like, damn, yo. So I was depressed. And, mm -hmm. and then out of nowhere, you know, like, you know, I kind of, I kind of snapped, you know, I, I mean, I, I would say that I, I think I started to kind of change when the murder of Antoine Rose happened. You know, he, he was a you know, 17 year old teenager who was murdered by uh, an East Pittsburgh police officer. 
I know, and you know, Pittsburgh pretty much had a whole summer protest in 2018, and that's kind of like when I snapped out of it. You know, I was I was brought to this city to have a different visual voice than what the city is used to, because for the most part, there, there's a few uh, photographers of color out there, but for the most part, a lot of photographers who are there, they're all white. You know, and now we're, we're you know, the city starting to have a conversation around unarmed black kids being murdered. So I felt that this is why I was brought here. So I, it just kind of like, I just kind of like did a whole 360 and just, that's kind of like when I knew that this is what I, what I, you know, like that's when I knew like, all right, I got this. So the criticism that you got, was it legitimate criticism or is that when someone who was trying to like. Oh no, it was, it was legit. I mean, it was, it was, it was legit criticism, but it, it could have been said in a more constructive way, in a more constructive manner. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, when, when you're in a, in, in a position of power where you have people under you, especially like photo editors, you know, th- you know, they're supposed to be, I guess, like your guiding lights and help you become the better person, the better person of who you, you want to be. That's not what was happening to me at that time. So that's why I was like, you know, I, damn, maybe I should quit. You know, like maybe this yeah. isn't for me. So being a person of color, especially being an immigrant, how do you think it made what you did differently than what the other photographers on staff were doing? How did that experience help shape what you created? I guess it was it was personal in a way because, you know, and, and you know, when Antoine looked, Antoine looked like me. You know, it's just like, you know, when Barack Obama said about Trayvon, you know, Trayvon looks like me, he could have been my son, you know, Antoine could have been mm-hmm. my little brother. I, I mean, I, I say, I say this, I say this pretty often, you know, like, you know, when the press badge, when my press badge comes off, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black man in America. So like things like this can happen, easily happen to me. It, it, so I felt that it, it was personal for me. And, you know, the people who are out there protesting, yes, they're protesting, you know, they're, they're protesting for the injustice that happened, but they're also protesting for me and myself because I'm a black man in yeah. this country. So I, 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 you know, I always, I always feel that I have to photograph them and photograph them and protest in a way that's, I, I, I don't want to say offensive, but that's not offensive to them. That shows them in the, in, in how, how that photograph them in a way that they want to be represented in. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So, but one of the things that you have to deal with, though, is that even if you are on staff as a photographer, you're largely dealing with white editors, yeah. white male editors, for that fact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go in with your four or five best photographs that you think are are the most representative of of the story that you're trying to tell. But there's often a situation where you have to convince or educate the the editor as to why you think. Um, the image, certain images are best represented. And then See, another you know, one. My, yeah. My. I mean, the good, the good thing, though, at, at that time when, when that was happening is that we had some phenomenal editors who were working there. Uh, our, our our executive editor at the time was Sally Stapleton. She's the one who brought me there. And, you know, mm-hmm. she, you know, she's been with AP for a while and she's with AP now. And, you know, worked also with Rebecca Joke. Rebecca Joke at that time, you know, she was amazing also. And they understood, they understood the visual language and the power of imagery. I, 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 I want to say there were every times where they chose one of my photographs to represent something that I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. I never had to deal with that. I never had to be like, I don't like that image. Why do you use this image? Why not that image? You know, at the same time, you know, like if I didn't want an image used, I wouldn't turn it in. Yeah. So I mean, if I felt that took an image that I really didn't like, and I didn't want to be representative of my work, why would, you know, I don't, I don't want that to reflect the bad on me. So why would I submit that image? How many people were on staff when you were there? 
Um, I believe 14 or 15 people on staff. Wow, that's a good yeah. number. That's, yeah. that's, that's incredibly rare mm-hmm. nowadays because mm-hmm. of the nature of newspapers. But tell me about what it was like to work with all these other photographers with a variety of different experience levels and, and backgrounds. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, I mean, some of the, some of the folks are still there. Um, but when I was, you know, we had an incredible, incredibly, incredibly talented staff. And, you know, one of the things that I always did in, you know, whether I was working or not working is that I would go back and see what, you know, what people's assignments were and see what images are submitted just to just, go, just to just go back and look at the work. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they're incredibly talented people who were working there. So it was just like, and, you know, it, that kind of, it amped me up and it made me work harder because I wanted to be at their level because they were, you know, people already knew who they were, you know, you know, they, they, they used, they clean up at the, like the Northern short course, the competition, the Nariola competitions. They're oh, always, yeah. they, uh-huh. they're always, they, you know, they were always cleaning up. So being there working alongside them, I was like, all right, you know, like I'm going to learn from them and just kind of just watch and just see how they work and just, you know, it, 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 I, I think that it made me be a better photographer working alongside them. What do you think was the quality that, many of them had that allowed them to reach such a such a high mark when it came to photography i mean they just they loved what what they did and they loved the city they Mm. you know the fear that you know they have so much love for the city that they want to just do it right by right do do right by the people you know like and i would say that not just not just with the photo the photographers there but also a lot of reporters there you know like they want to do right by the city and, and and it's unfortunate everything that's been happening at the, at the paper for the past couple of years, and it just keeps getting worse. And there's a lot of great people who are leaving the paper, you know, who have been leaving the paper since I was there. And it's unfortunate because it's the city that suffers, the people who suffer, you know. Yeah. And pr- prior to me getting there, you know, the paper already had kind of like a little bit of a bad reputation. But we were doing we were doing amazing work, and all the people who were doing amazing work basically just got pushed out. You were one of the team of photographers that, that documented the uh, Tree of Life massacre. Yeah. For which the newspaper won a Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. An incredible, difficult thing to, to cover, I imagine. Any, any that kind of tragedy is, you know, almost unfathomable to, to believe that it's happened, but much less to go out and have to sort of photograph um, the aftermath. T- tell me about that experience and how, how, I, how it impacted you. Yeah. So like, you know, once, once I finally realized that, you know, that this wasn't just a normal shooting, that it was a mass shooter, I was just basically running around grabbing extra batteries and memory cards and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, once I was getting ready to get out the door and to head towards the synagogue, I, you know, I got a phone call and I got rerouted to the individual's home because we ended up having the address and I ended up making it to the person's house before the FBI and ATF even got there. Um, so I was just pretty much ticked out there the whole entire day. Then after that, it was just basically covering, covering memorials and covering, you know, funerals. And it, and it was, it was wild because we, I, I knew that I had a job to do and I had to photograph, you know, people crying and mourning, but I also didn't want to overstep my boundaries. So like I had to figure out a way to, to do my job while still being respectful. And, you know, and there were times where like, you know, Instead of photograph, before I even photographed, I would ask people if they were comfortable being photographed, you know, that, you know, that helped me, that kind of helped me ease into it. But the funeral was just, it, it was just, I mean, the feeling that I, that, that I can't, I can't, I don't even know how to come up with how I felt covering the funerals. It was just something that I, I just, it was overwhelming. 
there were days where, you know, I didn't, you know, I lived alone in Pittsburgh. There were days where I didn't want to go home. So I would just drive, drive around listening to music just to try to get my head outside of what was going on. I mean, but I think ultimately, I think, you know, we did a, a, a great job of covering, you know, what happened, you know, and, and, you know, after that, I, end, you know, I ended up running into a lot of, you know, a few of the survivors who were there, you know, the police officers and some of the, some of the people who were inside the synagogue. They, they remembered, you know, each time I would see them, they remembered who I was and they all, you know, they would thank us or, you know, thank me and send thanks to the, to our staff for how we covered it. And like, I, I also like one of the toughest times, I, I remember when the following day when, the, you know, when the names of the victims were read that we had to go door knocking, it was just something I never want to do ever again. It, it was tough. Like, these people lost family members in such a tragedy and the very next day we're knocking on their doors. Like, I think that's probably one of the worst things I've ever had to do. And, you know, it was to talk to them, to interview them, possibly get some photographs for running in the article or what exactly were you being called to do? I mean, we, we were trying to just, you know, talk to family members, talk to neighbors, anybody who would talk to us about who the, who the individuals were, because, you know, we wanted to, you know, let, not just the city, but the nation know who these people were, you know, like mm -hmm. we, we, we didn't just want them to be a name. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to put, we wanted to put a human being with those names instead of just reading the names, yeah. you know, the, the reporter that I, that I was, that I was assigned to, to work with, you know, we didn't have any luck at, you know, at, you know, with the people who we had to contact, but you know, she still ended up writing a pretty beautiful, beautiful article on the people who we had. I recently picked up a copy of Mary Ellen Mark's posthumous retrospective, The Book of Everything. This three-volume set spans the entirety of her career, from her first visits to India to the portraits she created before her death in 2015. It's an amazing collection of photographs that was put together in collaboration with her husband and creative partner, Martin Bell. I've always been inspired by her talent, her passion, and her tenacity. It was those very qualities that led her to create images that will be long remembered. I consider myself blessed to have spent time with her and record a conversation for an episode of The Candid Frame. We both enjoyed the conversation, and I had hopes of sitting down with her again, but it wasn't to be. But that episode, and many others like it, demonstrate why I believe this show is so special and unique. As we near the end of another season, the show is growing into a sort of uh, historical archive of what photography has been and is evolving into. At their best, each episode provides the kind of insight you typically don't find anywhere else. At least that's my hope. You have been a big part of this by being a listener and spreading the word about the show. You can also do so much more by coming on board as a financial supporter of The Candid Frame. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Even $5 a month makes a huge difference. You've been thinking about doing this for a very long time. Today is the day to finally do it. Thank you for your kindness and your support. So I would imagine that the toll of that 
probably didn't hit immediately, especially since you were de- dealing concurrently with the loss of your own father. Yeah, and and, and I was still uh, I was still also dealing with covering the you know the Antoine Rose stuff. So it was like you mm. know like I, I mean I've had I was talking to to somebody not that long ago, actually Idris Solomon. Um, yeah. he, he he texted me right before I left to to Louisville last week to cover the Breonna Taylor case, and now I'm, I'm going on two straight years of covering nothing but tragedies without a break. It's just concurrent, and, and it's just like. I love being a photojournalist and I really love news, but it, it's, it, it takes a toll because I'm doing nothing but covering tragedy, you know, and, and lately it's been covering, you know, tragedy revolving around black life. It's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy thing. Like I'm at the point where like now, like, can I go photograph landscapes? You know, <laughs> you know, the, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with climate change and there's, I, and there's um, huge icebergs that are breaking off. You know, let me go, I, I can do that. <laughs> let me go photograph icebergs for a while and like sea lions and stuff. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I get it. You know, it's, it's one thing to always know that that's as a, as a person of color, that that's something you have to contend with. Yeah. But when you see it, reflected in the media on a constant level it's something you can compartmentalize most of the time which I yeah, think and, is and, a and lot it's, of what we and do. it's hard to and it's hard to because you know like we you know we're, we're addicted to technology in our phones so we're constantly on social media so I, we're, we're yeah. doing nothing but reading it you know and the only times the only times that I, that I have like quiet moments where I can kind of just like try to com- compartmentalize what I'm feeling with and what I'm dealing with is when I'm in airplanes because I have no Wi-Fi. So I'm just sitting there like listening to music and just gathering my thoughts. And that's the only time where everything just hits me. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's like the only time that like I have to just not have my brain reading stuff um, that I shouldn't yeah. be reading constantly, you know? So, uh, well, you read the paper, you were banned from uh, photographing um, the protests or, or revolving George Floyd. Yes, um, because you retweeted something that uh, uh, journalist Alexis Johnson had uh, had posted. T- tell yeah. me about the story about you know all that and how how you felt about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really can't go into it too much, is because of paperwork that I signed. Mm-hmm. But I mean, basically, she had tweeted out some images. Actually, a couple of them were my images of a country concert and compared them to what people say happens during, during writers and protesters. At, that, at the time, still now, the paper had no social media policy. So she was taking off coverage. And I basically had her back because it was, you know, one, you know, one of the things that that tends to get lost when, you know, during the whole Black Lives Matter movement is that sometimes black women aren't protected enough. And I felt that I needed to protect her as, in, in the way that I could. So I stood up for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started I started having her back in between and support of her before even it, it fully blew up as at the way it did. And, you know, finally, they were just like, all right, you're taking off coverage. You know, and, and the thing is, is that I wasn't the only one who was taking off coverage. A lot of other people were, but I was one of the only one of the only, one of the few people who were actually told you are no longer covering this anymore. And, but I was just I was never really given an explanation. You know, to I, I you know no management hadn't spoken to me. My direct editor hadn't hadn't talked to me. So I really had no idea why I was taking off coverage. I was given no mm-hmm. reason or explanation at all whatsoever. So I had to basically just assume. Yeah, I mean, I, I covered I covered one protest, and that was the initial protest that happened there on May thirtieth, and that was the day that basically Pittsburgh looked like a war zone. I mean, that's the only way I could describe it. You know, like 
what I experienced covering that covering that day, it was like I don't know if you ever seen Children of Men, but oh, yeah. it, it looked like a scene out of Children of Men. You know, like it was it was it was during the daytime, but it looked like it was night because there were fire smoke covering the whole place, and there was flashbangs, all all kinds of things going on. It was basically a war zone. Um, so that ended up being the only the only George Floyd protest that I that I covered while I was in Pittsburgh. You know, and then subsequently I ended up leaving, and I'm in a better place now. Thankfully, and you now now you're freelancing for Getty. No, I'm actually a staff photographer with Getty. Oh, you're a staff photographer. Yeah. So tell me about how that all that happened. My situation, what I was dealing with in Pittsburgh, was pretty much national news. So everybody, everybody knew what was going on. I ended up getting the editor, who you know, the person who runs um Pancho, who runs the news side of Getty. You know, he had already been watching my work prior to that. Prior to that, and. He ended up, he ended up, you know, he got my phone number and, you know, we spoke for about an hour or so, you know, he wanted my, to hear, you know, he had seen me talking, he had read everything, but he wanted to directly hear my side of the story of what happened. And we spoke for about an hour while I went change, you know, and, you know, he offered me a job a few days later <laughs> mm. and that's, that kind of, that's pretty much how, how it went. So how is, how's it different from working at the paper? Um, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I'm working alongside people who I, you know, whose work I studied while I was in, in school, you know, mm. and then these guys now, not only they're my, they're my coworkers, but now they're my mentors. You know, they, they give me advice and they talk to me every single time, I, I, you know, I, I go to assignment, you know, I hear from them all the time. You know, our editors are great. They put me in a position to succeed and to become a better, a better photographer than I was all the time. And they give me the tools that I need to do that. And it's not just that, but they also trust me. You know, like the, my very first big assignment was covering the John Lewis Memorial down in Alabama. You know, I was on, I, I've only been with the company for about a couple of weeks. And that's something that they, that they trusted me to go out and, and do and cover successfully. And, you know, and I, and I, I me, I believe, I want to say that I believe that I did so, you know, and I, and I felt that in a way that, you know, that I proved that to them, that they made the right decision for, for having me there. And I, I feel that I continue to, to prove that they made the right decision in hiring me. Yeah. It's just a less stressful situation than, than Pittsburgh. I, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough how I feel that I, I feel that I'm in the place where I'm wanted and not only do they want me here, but they want me to succeed and can to keep growing to, to the potential that I, that I can be. Well, you know, when, you, when you're doing that, that kind of work, whether you're doing it as a staff photographer or as a, as a freelancer, there's a there's a high degree of hustle. Mm -hmm. You know, we we have some mutual friends, and it's often the times about you know keep moving, you know, because if you're not moving, you're sinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? and uh, like you said, you've been covering a lot of sort of emotionally exhausting stuff, but it it can take a toll. You can get fatigued. You can get burned burned out. Uh, and you likely have known people who who have experienced that. Mm -hmm. So what what are you doing or what are you not doing with yeah. respect to, you know, taking care of yourself in that way? Yeah, I mean, so it's, I mean, so right now, like I'm, I'm currently in quarantine because Kentucky is one of those states where you have to quarantine from when you travel there. So, you know, this entire week. I've been playing video games all week. And that's kind of like what I do. That's where I go. I play video games and I read books. But the thing is that right now. I mean, I, prior to this, one of the things that I've noticed is that I tend to play violent video games. So that's how I calm myself down. So like right now I'm playing a game 
where I kill zombies. And I'm also reading a book about zombies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and, and, it's, and it's funny because like, that, you know, yesterday I went, I went out to get coffee and I was walking and I was walking and, and, and I'm, and I was like looking at my phone and I looked up and I saw a crowd of people. And the very first thing that popped in my head, it was like, Oh shit, a zombie horde. And I started, <laughs> and, I, and I started to prepare to jump a fence. And I'm like, this is real life. There's no zombies in here. So like, I, that's kind of like what, what, what I do, man. I just like, I, 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 I play video games and I read. That's kind of like what I, what I do to kind of just, try to relax but i know that i should kind of like you know not play violent video games but the funny thing is that you know when i play sport i get more my blood pressure raises when i play sports video games so it's like you know do i do do i play a a, a game where i'm killing people or or do i play a sports game where like i'm more likely to throw a remote controller because somebody scored a touchdown so you know it's a balance do you find that photography is still a passion for you I, or? Yeah. Or? I mean, I, I, it's, it's a passion. I, I think, and, and I would say that like, I really, really am grateful to be here at Getty because I work with some incredibly incredible people. And, you know, like, like I said, they keep putting me in positions to succeed and that's helping me to kind of just like fall in love again with what I'm doing. The thing about Getty is that, it's a, it's an organization where it's possible that my images can pretty much go all over the world. And, you know, the very first time that I experienced that and the very first time that I saw my photo at the front, like the front page, like the Washington post and other newspapers, it made me feel like, damn, like this is, this is what I've been working for for so long. And I'm finally here. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't just land here. I've been busting my ass like for the last six, seven years. You know, there were times where, you know, I, w- I wouldn't eat and I wouldn't pay bills. So I would have enough money to rent a car to go out and do some work. You know, I- I've had people that, you know, thank God, you know, have helped me along the way. But I've I've, I've worked my ass off to get to where I'm at right now. I-, I feel that now I'm like, yes, like this is this is what I worked hard for. So, you know, I look forward to getting out there and just photographing, you know, and, you know, and, and to be with a company that, you know, that respects me and I feel that loves me. Mm-hmm. helps helps to keep that passion and that fire inside me going so what are, what does moms think about what you do uh i mean she she's she 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 just thinks she's glad that that i'm that i'm happy you know like her big thing was and me you, like and right. you got a job and i got a job i got a i got a yeah job because it, it was wild because when i when i was in, when i was in pittsburgh she was just like dude you know like she didn't call me dude but she was like you know you got to be quiet you know, like, you, you know, you can't, oh. you can't talk about this people because you're going to get blackboard and people are not going to want to hire you. You know, you can't talk about things that happen to you. And, you know, like that kind of made me depressed because I don't know what my mom has experienced in her life in America, you know, because who, who knows what she's experienced and kept quiet to herself just so she wouldn't lose her job. And that's where yeah. my head was at. You know, what has she told us about what she's experienced at work, man, just so she could keep getting putting food on the table. You know, but I, t- I, I told her, I was like, mom, you know, you know, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So when I got the job, she was like, good, good. I'm glad. Now you got to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, my dad, my, 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 the one job advice my dad ever gave me, he said, you always look busy. If you got mm-hmm. nothing to do, pick up a broom. Mm-hmm. 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 You can't. You can't be looking like you. you I don't. You can't be looking like you got idle hands. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? So there, there's one photographer that I'm going to say and like people, I, I think the last couple of weeks, people are going to know that this photographer's name is going to come out of my mouth because I've just been bigging him up. <laughs> Brandon Bell. You know, young man out out of LA. This kid, I don't want to call him kid. I mean, he's gonna he's gonna laugh that that I called him a kid because you know he made a joke about me me saying him saying that he was my son when we were working together <laughs> in Louisville. He's he's definitely I, I want to say that he's lit a fire under my ass. Like he's inspired me with his work. Like this kid is amazing. Like his his work is extremely amazing. It's passionate. It's heartful. You know, working alongside him in Louisville, it just it made me work harder because I I want to be able to do the work that he's that he's putting out. You know, you know he 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 started pretty much came up on the radar when he was after George Floyd died. He went out to Minneapolis and he was working in Minneapolis. And ever since then, man, like he's just been putting in the work. He's grinding and he's put, he's doing some amazing amazing work. And and I I think that if you don't know who Brandon Bell is, get familiar. He's he's good. He's dope. Well, thank you for that, Michael. And thank you for your time. It was a pleasure to finally have a nice, proper sit down with you. Thank you. I appreciate appreciate you having me here. Thanks to Michael for joining us. Find out more about Michael and his work by visiting msantiagophotos.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks to Brooke Schultz for her five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember... You can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or reoccurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Deborah Howard, Richard Topgard, Ellen Friedlander, Susan Sheridan, and Frederick Tovartin for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.